Welcome to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Stefano Bini, and I'll be your host for this new season, bringing you the best talks from the DACASF 2021 experience. Friday start off hot with Anthony Chang, MD, MBA, MPH, NMS, Chief Intelligence and Innovation Officer at Children's Hospital Orange County, where he works as a pediatric cardiologist. He's also the founder of Artificial Intelligence and Medicine, or otherwise known as AIMed.io, and leads the AIMed Global Summit. We asked him to talk about AI in medicine, and specifically bias in AI, and algorithmic trust. Let's join him on the DocSF virtual stage. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Anthony Chang. I'm a pediatric cardiologist from the Children's Hospital of Orange County. And I want to thank Stefano for his kind invitation to join you today, and also DocSF and the UCSF Department of Orthopedic Surgery. So I'd like to share with you a quick survey of artificial intelligence. There's a lot of asks in the uh, invitation, but I'll do the best I can. So I think I just want to pause and thank all the frontline workers. I know some of you may be in that position to take care of our patients during a global emergency and also pay tribute to the 10,000 or more frontline workers that have perished since the beginning of the pandemic. So speaking of the pandemic, and I think it was an artificial intelligence company called Blue Dot that initially forecasted the beginning of a global pandemic back in December. So artificial intelligence was already at work, even predicting the pandemic. If you look at the number of manuscripts that have been published since then, we know that medical knowledge is now doubling 60 days. So it's impossible for any clinician to keep up with the literature. But when you have a hot topic like the pandemic, it's estimated that we'll have over 150,000, probably even close to 200,000 publications this year. And that's less than one per minute. So we really need an innovative way of approaching knowledge discovery. And I think artificial intelligence is a part of that solution. As you recall, it took several months before we realized that we could prune the patients and ventilate them that way rather than putting them on a mechanical ventilator. And I think that speaks for something that my colleague Howard Lai and I have uh, proposed, which is the concept of agile clinical research. So uh, looking at databases in real time, and have algorithms to predict what's the best way of treating. I think rather than randomized controlled trials, which I think is a little bit outdated uh, for 2021 in the face of a global public health emergency. I think another aspect of AI is uh, looking at the history of AI. And it's been several milestones along the way and what I call the modern era of artificial intelligence. So in the 1990s, Gary Kasparov, the Russian chess champion, was defeated by Big Deep Blue from IBM. And also the human champions in Jeopardy was defeated by IBM Watson, which went on to develop a healthcare focus as well. And lastly, just a few years ago, human Go champion Lee Seedall was defeated by a sophisticated algorithm called Deep Reinforcement Learning from DeepMind, which was acquired by Google. And also, I think if we look at the history of AI, especially for medical and healthcare-related AI, been a convergence of three different forces that's been really instrumental in getting us to where we are now. The first is advances in algorithms in about 2012 from Jeff Hinton's group in Canada, increased cloud storage, which makes it possible to have lots of information and data stored, and now even AI done in the cloud. And lastly, thanks to our gaming industry, improved processing with GPUs to improve processing speed. And lastly, the abundance of 
data that's now available in healthcare. Also, currently, we are still in the phase of what's called narrow or weak AI in terms of very task-specific artificial intelligence. We're nowhere close to general or strong AI, which is an AI that can do many, many things. So we're still very task-focused. So speaking of artificial intelligence, it's usually under the domain of computer science. And then machine learning is sort of a way for computers to learn on its own uh, with uh, statistical methods. And that is under artificial intelligence. Deep learning is the uh, even more sophisticated way of doing machine learning. And that's usually takes inspiration from the human brain in a way with uh, neural networks. So deep learning and machine learning are really not exactly interchangeable for artificial intelligence because artificial intelligence does encompass other disciplines. Data science is also a term that's been thrown around and it started from data mining and data analytics and it's evolved into data science. And then you have statistics and mathematics. So all of these fields are converging and it's probably not entirely necessary to distinguish boundaries of all these areas. I was asked to cover artificial intelligence in 20 minutes or so. So this is artificial intelligence on one slide, essentially, specifically machine and deep learning. We'll cover a few of the classification schemes and uh, deep learning in the form of convolutional neural network. But obviously, this is a book as well as a two-day course in its entirety. So I'll just highlight a few things. Now, one of the most important things to appreciate about artificial intelligence in healthcare is that we have a lot of work in terms of getting data and data infrastructure set up well for artificial intelligence. So the conundrum of healthcare data decelerates the velocity of artificial intelligence in medicine for sure. So for those of you who are not interested in programming but want to be involved in artificial intelligence in medicine, please appreciate that we could use your help in just getting data and data structure set up. Now, why do we really need artificial intelligence in medicine? This was a demonstration early on when I was in school. I took a course in radiology and artificial intelligence. And something I've always wanted to do as a cardiologist was to imagine what it'd be like to have an MRI and echo superimposed on top of each other. And with a little bit of MATLAB programming, I was able to do that and then actually got it as a publication. So I think one of the interesting things about artificial intelligence is a new tool or solution for old methodologies and problems. Now, doctors are not going to be replaced by artificial intelligence. And here's the reason why. So on the left is the brain doing perception tasks like medical image interpretation and integrative data analytics. On the right are more complex tasks like decision-making and creative problem-solving under cognition. And for those of you who are operating, for sure, that's one of the most difficult things for artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence will not replace clinicians, but will augment or amplify their capabilities. Now, one of the ways of artificial intelligence in uh, manifestation is something called deep learning. And there's something called convolutional neural network or CNN. So it's easy to remember because it's the television station, news station, and you just remember that it's image focused. So you have layers of convolution and pooling you see here in animation, basically aggregates features, extract features. So that essentially deconstructs a medical image into numbers so that computers can understand. So essentially computer sees with depiction of pictures and numbers. So here's CNN at work. In the operating room, here's a biopsy sample. Rather than send, sending all of it to the pathology lab, some of it is retained and put in the, in the form of image processing with a deep learning tool in the operating room. So this is software that's embedded in the operating room. And here you see that the image is processed. And rather than waiting 20, 30, 40 minutes, it's done in 100 seconds based on the library of images 
that they can relate to. So uh, it'll help the surgeons tremendously in terms of expediting the workflow. And you see that in 100 seconds, it is completed and it predicts the likelihood of benign versus malignant nature of the tissue. I think uh, just in surgery, there's been publications on use of artificial intelligence and surgical decision-making. I think what's nice is we're trying to really push the agenda to the next century with the way we look at data in a much more organized and much more sophisticated fashion for um, perioperative training. And I think that's the key word is we want the preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative phases all involve what artificial intelligence can do that humans perhaps may not be able to do. I think another example of using artificial intelligence now in orthopedic surgery is this study that looked at uh, ways of breaking down an operation. I think this case was a laminectomy and look at the different ways that different surgeons perform the operation and were able to break down a junior versus more senior level of surgical competence using support vector machines and other types of classification algorithms. Another use in orthopedic surgery I think is um, exciting as well is using the Microsoft HoloLens and superimpose in a mixed reality fashion of having that image so that while the surgeon's operating, you can actually visually see what the anatomy underneath would be. And that will involve artificial intelligence in the future as well. A few papers from other subspecialties that I think are useful. One is uh, in pulmonology using unsupervised learning. So I'd let the data speak for themselves and have cluster analysis to perhaps come up with new subtypes of different diseases. Here is a very sophisticated use of a tool called deep reinforcement learning that helps the clinician make decisions real time as much as possible. So there are some really exciting artificial intelligence tools that will take us away from evidence-based medicine and into an era I call intelligence-based medicine. And so that phrase inspired me to write a book of that title, so again, it's artificial intelligence and human cognition. I think that's important. We can't rely on just artificial intelligence. And that also further inspired me to start a journal called Intelligence-Based Medicine as well. And you're welcome to publish in that journal. So Stefan asked me to make a few comments about bias. And I think that's a very important topic. So the relationship has changed now between a clinician and the patient in that if we use AI more aggressively, then it's going to change into a physician-machine-patient triad. So that has its own challenges. But I think ultimately still comes down to trust, transparency, and responsibility for all of us who work well. And obviously, there's degrees of the AI being involved in decision-making. So if we break down the workflow of the classical machine learning, there's three components. One is sort of the data processing and feature extraction. Think of this as the notes in a musical composition. So with that part, the first part, we can perhaps learn how to have the data prepared so that there's no bias. And a lot of the healthcare disparities come from, as you can imagine, from data and inequality among the ethnic groups. So I think um, performance disparities of these models, because of the data not being equal in terms of looking at the various parameters, can cause problems. So we need to clean up the data, essentially. The second part of workflow in machine learning is the model itself, the learning algorithm itself. And pretend that is like the, the violin itself. So I think a model we can work on because the prediction can bring actually highlight inequities in healthcare. Historically, we haven't been able to really appreciate the inequities. So this is a study looking at how uh, machine learning can make us realize that we've been a little bit unfair looking at just radiologic images to predict severity of disease. The last part is the deployment part of the algorithm. 
and you can equate that to the actual performance of the violin piece. And this is a good example. So the bias needs to be assessed by us, the humans, doing the real-world deployment of the model. So we need insight and wisdom. So if we are not careful, we can assume certain things that are equal when, in fact, they're not. This is a paper by Ziad Obermeyer looking at bias if we just look at healthcare costs rather than illness. But I do think we need machines to help us deal with the algorithms. And here's a famous line by Alan Turing that's in the movie, The Imitation Game, that our problem is that we are only using men to, or humans to try to beat it, the Enigma machine he's talking about. What if a machine can defeat another machine? So in fact, I think we learn a lot about us and ourselves when we talk about bias. So like a child that who learns from a parent, the computer also learns from its creator, us but it must be in synergy with us to minimize bias. So in essence, we need to work together. And this is an IEEE effort to look at bias and algorithms. And there's a working group and there are also white papers coming out of Europe, hopefully the US as well. So in summary, I think in healthcare disparities, local and global can be present and we just need to be particularly vigilant to look at the biases. And this is this exaggerated and urgent crises like COVID-19 and also emerging technologies that I'll talk about in a few minutes. And also, I think it teaches us about ourselves a great deal. So if you're interested in ethics and bias, these are two excellent books. I would recommend The Ethical Algorithm by Michael Carnes and AI Ethics out of uh, the MIT Press. So what's going to happen in the future of AI medicine? I think I'm a Formula One race fan. And you can see here, it's not all about the driver. If we think we're the drivers, then we need to work very closely with our engineers and the principal team of the team. So essentially, the, the driver is in a really, really big dependency with the team members. So, And I think that's a good thing. So I think orthopedic surgeons can work much closer with, I think, data scientists to come up with really good algorithms that will improve patient outcome. So I think the star really should be the patient. So I think uh, what happens, we're here now where the red arrow is, we overestimate the results in the short term. But I think we're going to underestimate what AI can do a decade from now. So that's very classic for any uh, new technology. This is how a friend of mine, Top Hansky, imagined the future of uh, surgical mentoring, uh, rather than always having a person next to a trainee that we will have a real-time uh, deep learning education and training tool that's available essentially highlight anatomic landmarks, perhaps recommend staying away from certain structures during the operation, essentially be your virtual mentor. I think in the future of medicine, we're going to be focused a lot more on the cognitive AI aspects. So right now we're in what I call a statistical AI with machine and deep learning. As good as they are, I think we have a lot more dividends to come if we get even more intelligent about artificial intelligence. Another big advance recently, and then we'll continue to push the AI agenda, is the use of transformers or uh, ways of looking at natural language processing architecture a little bit differently. And GPT-3 is here already. There are already natural language processing tools that are superior to GPT-3 in development. And natural language processing, as you may or may not know, is the way that we communicate with machines, either verbally or in written form. Another exciting area, I think is particularly relevant to orthopedic surgeons in terms of rehabilitation, is the availability of devices that will become more intelligent. So there are 250 billion devices already out there in the world, and some of them are medical devices. Wouldn't be great if they actually have some primitive AI built in so the information can be fed back into the caretaker to look at rehabilitation and other uh, sequences in therapy. 
I think an exciting area is federated learning. We worry a lot about sharing data, and perhaps that's been a big uh, obstacle to overcome. And one of the ways we can overcome it, in addition to technologies like blockchain, is to perhaps keep the data local and then do AI on that local data and shift the parameters and weights of the AI centrally to a global model to update and then get feedback. So in other words, it's sort of like the central nervous system getting all the information from the peripheral nervous system. An exciting area, I think also with great relevance to orthopedic surgery is the concept of a virtual and digital twin, which is essentially leveraging AI for virtual representation of a patient or certain operation. So I think you can literally perform a difficult operation well ahead of time and see what the best outcome might be. So in essence, the traditional model of medical intelligence or surgical intelligence has been a certain trajectory. And I think with artificial intelligence and digital health and innovation entrepreneurship, I think we can push the improvement of medical or surgical intelligence into a much higher dimension with uh, changing the trajectory of acquisition of intelligence in general. So if you're interested in getting to know more, we have, I'm the Dean of the American Board of AI Medicine. And we offer a two-day review course every month, usually a Thursday, Friday, or Friday, Saturday. So it's relatively friendly to clinician schedules. And you can get an educational certification after completion of the course and passing an assessment. So there's the URL for that. And we also have a medical intelligence society that convenes clinicians with a data science interest. And we have our monthly meeting the second Monday of each month. And our annual meeting is July 30th and 31st this year. And it's open to everyone. And also, I'm chair of the AI Med Multimedia Enterprise that have webinars and on-site meetings, hopefully soon, as well as many, many educational tools like blogs and discussion forums. Uh, we just completed one this week on uh, surgery. But if you're interested in other areas like radiology and also primary care, we have the clinician series that are ongoing for uh, each quarter of the year. And there's the URL for that. And we have our big annual meeting coming up. This time will be January 18th to the 20th of next year at the Ritz-Carlton here in Southern California. And with that, I want to thank my partners and team uh, members at the Medical Intelligence and Innovation Institute, or MI3, at my hospital, Children's Hospital Orange County, and also my many good friends and colleagues and mentors at Stanford School of Medicine with the Biomedical Data Science and AI program there. Here's my contact information if you'd like to know anything. My cell phone is there as well, so feel free to text me and say hi or so that we can get to know each other. I'm happy to help whoever with a need as best as I can. So with that, thank you very much. So Anthony, it is so good to be with you. Thank you for joining us. And more importantly, wow, that was a lot of information that you just shared on AI. How are you feeling? Great. First of all, I want to thank, well, thank you for being here today, but also thanks Stefano for inviting me and having the insight and the forward thinking to get AI more involved with, with this group at DocSF. And I think I'm just reflecting one of the best questions I ever got was from an orthopedic surgeon asking whether or not AI could be useful in helping him sort of better prioritize patients on the schedule as well as predict their outcome based on their risk profile. And that was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, an orthopedic surgeon asked me that question at a workshop. So I'm very inspired by orthopedic surgeons. My brother's a plastic surgeon, so I can relate to, to your group. Yeah. So in listening to, first of all, the full breadth of everything that you were sharing, you are so busy and doing so many different things. And I wanted to say thank you for your time in helping us to go a lot deeper into 
the uses of AI. I love how you laid the groundwork to really help us understand this is a whole other discipline, a whole other science. And I'm curious, oftentimes, what I find is that a lot of people feel very intimidated. They look at this and say, yeah, look, as if orthopedic surgery, um, as if surgery, as if healthcare isn't complicated enough. Now you're bringing in this whole other domain. You've clearly gone very deep into this and done, you know, been the super user and, and really helped us to understand how we can be using it. What can you offer so that as people are listening to not be intimidated and feel like they have to go as deep as you have gone with AI in order for this to be useful? Yeah, no, great question. I get this often. First of all, take it. I think everyone should take a deep breath. It's going to be here for a while. It's going to be the future. We have to learn to accommodate it and learn to use it to our advantage. It's not about programming, which is I get often asked by clinicians, you know, the question would be in the form of, I'm not a good programmer, I never was, or I'm not interested in programming, so how am I going to get into this AI domain? And I'd say, well, bring yourself in as a clinician. And the analogy I draw is I'm a violinist, so I'm always tying in musical analogies. So imagine that the clinicians are sitting in the orchestra in the string section. We're all string players, violins and violas and bass. And now uh, we want to bring in new sections to the orchestra. So we've been in the Baroque period playing string ensembles. And now we want to move into the Romantic period where Beethoven is, is a composer. And he wants, you know, the woodwinds. He wants brass. He wants singers even, you know. Yeah. So we're accommodating new sections to this orchestra of clinical medicine. It doesn't mean that you leave your seat and go play the trombone. Uh, I'll go play the trumpet, I mean. And you can just stay in your seat as a violinist, as a clinician, and learn that the new dynamics now of incorporating newer sections of the orchestra, learn about the composition that's going to be different in terms of how you emphasize certain sections and certain passages and learn to play with other instruments. Yeah. You're just adding more to the musical score. Correct. Um, You're and adding I think, sophistication and diversity. Yeah. yeah. And when we do that, it gets more beautiful and more and truly more interesting. One of the things that you talked about is the uses of AI for its predictive powers. And goodness knows in the pandemic, we have seen yeah. so many uses of it. And I think those uses have been have been around, but then there's been this acceleration and condensation. So we see them much more clearly because there are just so many and we've had to rely on them. And I think we've had this willingness to take that risk or go into that place that's unfamiliar and use it because there was just so much happening so fast. So in that realm of prediction, I'm going to ask you to predict. What are some of the areas that you think that we really, you know, what are some of the wild ideas? Because one of the things that I'm thinking about is that we have seen, we've had this huge healthcare shortage. We have had to mobilize our resources. We've got to have people in different places doing mass testing, ICU, end-of-life care. Now we're in this mass vaccination. And so a central command center, there's just so many data inputs that might be able to help us predict where those needs are, where the outbreaks are. What are some of the places where you think specifically, maybe in the orthopedic realm, that we can be using AI for predictive powers? I always say, think of AI as a resource that you can perhaps think about as a uh, wearing a new lens in your eyes and looking at the world very differently. It doesn't mean only medical image interpretation, which is the robust area right now for AI, but look at workflow, look at prioritization of patients, and part of the problem during the pandemic era that we've had is we don't have a good enough data and IT infrastructure to really leverage AI to its fullest. And I think that's one thing we learned was we've got to really shore up our data and infrastructure so that when the next emergency comes is relatively 
more straightforward to prioritize patients, to distribute, allocate resources and workflow appropriately to be able to predict. Now, having said that, one of the difficulties has been because a phenomenon like a pandemic is a complex phenomenon. It's not complicated. Complicated is is like SpaceX coming back. That's complicated. That's engineering. That's predictable, more predictable, I should say. Pandemic, when you add in the virus and human behavior, it's highly... Or human misbehavior. (laughs) Depending on what party you're in. So that makes it difficult for even good data science to predict. So I think the predicting the number of people that might die was certainly off by magnitude. And I think that was... Not unexpected, in my opinion, because it's just too complex and it's a new phenomenon, new disease, right? But, you know, if you think about testing, people had clever ways of deploying machine learning to better prioritize patients to be tested or patients that are more likely to be positive to be tested. So you can test 100 patients all at once, put it into one sample, and then get a negative result because you predicted that out of these 100 people. So it's a, it's a much faster way of testing with much many more people. And that was, I thought, a very clever way of using machine learning. And then, of course, the real dividends have come in the area of therapeutics. And unbeknownst to a lot of people, while this pandemic was raging, you know, there were serious advances in very quickly for deep learning to be involved in protein determination, structure determination of viral proteins based on genomic sequencing. That would have taken months and years normally. It took weeks. So, and, and then that led to the vaccine design that we have now. So, AI was strong in areas that didn't involve a ton of human-derived data, but it, we still uh, had dividends, sizable dividends, I think. And it's really an, a wake-up call for us to get our data and IT structure correct. Yeah, there's a, when you were talking about the prediction in using the clinical data, there was a really good example of how you talked about marrying clinicians with data scientists. Yeah. And at Mount Sinai. Not necessarily literally. Not necessarily yeah. literally. I know couples like that, but not, yeah. not but yeah, at least professionally we should. Yeah. yeah. So there's a team at Mount Sinai which put pairs clinical clinicians yeah. with data scientists. And yeah. they were using developing AIs to help determine who's going to need to be on a ventilator, who's going to be discharged when, what was their discharge planning look like, who was right. more likely to need yeah. dialysis. So a lot of different ways for using the data to do clinical decision support. I think um, word there, Shauna, is real time. Yes. In healthcare, we're stuck in descriptive mode. We're Mm -hmm. looking at past data. We need to advance healthcare. And this, again, pandemic was a huge wake-up call for us and very good one because I think we're going to need to learn to do things real time, which is what I'm trying to encourage people to think about. I think the thing that the pandemic has taught us best is that we can do hard things, big things, and we can do them swiftly safely. And I think that that's one of the the lessons, you know, when we got pushed, if you had asked us pre-pandemic, can you do this? I think the answer would have been no, no way. Too hard, too risky. We wouldn't have even taken it on. But when forced to, we've realized that we can and we should. I think that that's the other part. The should part leads me into my next set of questions that I wanted to speak to you about. And that is the ethics, Mm -hmm. Um, ethics and bias. And as much promise as there is, and as much optimism as I think you and I both hold, we also are keenly aware of what happens, what are the ethics of what we're doing, and specifically making sure that the data is diverse, inclusive, representative. So you brought it up about there's an opportunity for us to be going deeply into this. When you think about 
those top questions that you want people to come in and start asking and more importantly, exploring on ethics in AI, what would those top three questions? I always think it's hard to ask like just one because yeah. <laughs> I know we, I know there were there are multiple children. So like, I won't ask you like, what's your one, but what are some of those burning questions that you think we really need to spend a lot of time thinking about with ethics in AI? People are concerned about uh, one, perpetuating biases, automating biases and into the algorithms and not be kind of aware that we are. And as I said to you earlier, I think one of the best dividends of AI is we, we're forced to really examine ourselves and how we practice. And I think we're responsible for making sure human and machine collaboratively, making sure that there's no inequity that's built into the algorithm. And we should test it at all levels during the data acquisition, during the algorithm development, model development. And then as it outputs, we need to make sure that we, in fact, have created uh, models that are not going to increase inequity. And I think machines are capable of actually making sure that there are no inequities and that can be built into the algorithm. Yeah. So I think, you know, we have to really examine ourselves and how we practice. A lot of the biases, as you know, are, are not intentional, but we find out after the fact that we, in fact, created something that had bias built in. The other question I always ask, I always ask is, you know, because we have so many things to improve on in medicine, I often question the ethics of not deploying AI that's ready. That the is missed automated. opportunities, the things that we let go undone. There's a lot of suffering for not acting. I mean, just think about it, Shana, during the pandemic, it took us two or three months before we realized that proning patients was just as efficacious, if not better, than intubating a patient and putting right. them on mechanical ventilation. That was an opportunity for real-time sharing of data and intelligence that we missed. And we should n not ever have that happen again. Yeah. You know, so this is what I mean by real-time efficiency of using AI. So I, I often give the counter question, which is, what about the ethics of not deploying AI? Yeah. And, and when you're bringing up the data and real time, one of the other areas that I think is so rich and really helping us to recognize our bias and give us something to respond to is real world data. Yes. And so, so much of the data that we are looking at or thinking about, we're getting it from clinical trials. We're getting it from, you know, our claims data. We're, you know, we're getting it from a lot of different places that is not as fresh, you know, when you think about and the real world data, I, I recently had a discussion with the clinical science team at Flatiron Health, and they've got this whole race, it's called RED, race and ethnicity data. And they're specifically looking at real world data and clinicians to try and identify their own bias in what type of a treatment they might offer, you know, and why, why didn't they? And none of us go into it, I think, wanting to have bias. You know, we, yeah. we want to do what's right and what's best. But until, I mean, Kathleen Manon is the, the leader of that team. And, you know, the thing that she says is that it's not until you're presented with the data that you actually have something to respond to and say, wow, I didn't realize I was doing that. Exactly. And it's, it's even a different, you know, it's a slightly different area for implicit bias, but it certainly has so many downstream impacts. Yeah. And if you begin with that bias, then you start having this clinical treatment, you're actually manufacturing data. Yeah. that you didn't intend for it to be biased, but then it becomes biased. So that's what I'm saying. You have to look at bias at all levels. Right. Um, the way you practice, the way you look at data, the way you collect data, the, the way you interpret data, the way you input data. Because a lot of times data is missing in databases and missing because of inequities in healthcare. And then we're making conclusions. So as I said, it's a real serious, deep self-reflection of how we practice as a health system.
that I think is very, very badly needed anyway. Um, yeah. So this AI is a North Star for us to shoot for, for equity and healthcare. And I think the other thing is we sometimes as humans have a little bit of hubris and we think the machine's not good or the, or the software didn't work. <laughs> it's the machine's fault, right? Well, you know, we're designing those <laughs> algorithms. We are responsible, even though the words artificial intelligence implies that it's us versus them. Yeah. It's actually us that created them. Yeah. So yeah. we need to realize that artificial intelligence in a way is a misnomer that it's really human-created intelligence in a machine, you know? That's Obviously, right. that's too long to say, but it's not really artificial de novo that no human was ever involved in, so. Yeah, well, I wanted to thank you for joining us today, enlightening us, and also inspiring us to find those ways where we can look in all the different levels. And to carry on with that conversation, we get to hear from an orthopedic oncologist from at UCSF. Her name is Melissa Zimmel, and she's actually looking very specifically at bias that exists in orthopedics, where it seeps in, how it impacts our clinical care, the outcomes and the experiences of everybody, and more importantly, what it is that each one of us, to your point, all those different layers and looking at ourselves, what each one of us can do to yeah. make sure that we are aware of those biases and more importantly, remove them so that our health, our health and our health care becomes far more equitable. On behalf of all of us at DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference at San Francisco, thanks for listening and for joining our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and tell your friends. If you're interested in joining our team, participating, or being interviewed on DocSF, please let us know. If not, please join the revolution and listen up for our next podcast. Thank you.